0: Hi everyone, Um, Angie Vargas here. I am uh, the pro bono director at Veterans Legal Services. Thank you so much for everyone, um, to everyone for joining us. Uh, We are basically uh, available um, or trying to make information available to you all, whether you are taking cases uh, for Housing for the Day or uh, sorry, Lawyer for the Day in the Housing Court or Um, if you're looking to volunteer specifically to help uh, veterans in need through us. So basically, if you take a regular housing case, your client might be a veteran. um, And there are certain considerations to take into account uh, when representing a veteran um, of uh, additional resources or additional things to just think about, um, additional ways to deal with them. The other thing is uh, that even if you're not uh, going to be doing lawyer for the day, uh, and you're looking for different ways of helping our veterans in need, especially during this difficult time, you can always do so by volunteering with us. We are a very small organization, uh, a private nonprofit, and we really, really rely on our pro bono attorneys to take on a bulk of the cases that we can't handle and that our veterans need our help with. So thank you very much again for joining us. I will uh, introduce our speakers very briefly because we don't have that much time, but we have a ton of things to cover. Uh, so if you ever do have any follow-up questions about the work that we do or how to get involved, you can reach me, Angie Vargas um, at uh, VLS, which easiest ways through email now that we're remote. So that would be Angie at veteranslegalservices.org. And I think at the end of one of the slide presentations, the information will be available to you. So next we're going to hear from attorneys Julie Froelich and Eve Elliott from Veterans Legal Services. They are both senior staff attorneys at our office. They work in a variety of uh, matters and they run some of our clinics. Um, They have shown an amazing commitment to working with this population and with those uh, most in need be it in their previous employment before coming to VLS or in the very long uh, time that they've been at VLS. That would be Eve, who's, who's a pretty long-term attorney with us. Um, they can tell you a little bit more about themselves, but again, I don't wanna waste uh, any of the precious time that we have here. Um, but after Eve and Julie speak, we will hear from uh, Nick Hassenfuss, or Hassenfuss, I always um, I get worried about not saying the name right. But Nick is An associate at Holland and Knight who concentrates his practice on intellectual property, licensing, transportation, data privacy, and security, and information technology. He is the pro bono chair of the firm's veterans group and he actively provides pro bono representation to service members, veterans, and their families with the unique legal challenges they face before the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and with state law issues. Nick is a member of the ABA's standing committee for legal assistance for military personnel and also recently accepted an invitation from Legal Services Corporation to serve on its new Veterans Task Force, an initiative to assist former military service members in overcoming legal problems that create barriers as they transition from active duty to civilian life. And Nick is a veteran himself, I believe. So um, without further ado, I will uh, pass it on to Julie and Eve. Thank you, Angie. Doug, can
1: you set up our PowerPoint, please? So today we're going to be discussing some of the benefits and resources that are available to veterans um, facing evictions. Uh, Next slide. So this is a list of the the topics that we'll cover today. Um, It is hard for us to touch on all the benefits and resources that are available to veterans in such a short amount of time and in great detail. So please keep in mind that this is just a brief overview. Um, There are many other benefits that are available to veterans that we are not able to touch upon today. Um, I know that there are more extensive trainings on veterans benefits out there, and I would encourage you to sign up for those as well. Um, We chose today to include those benefits that we believe are most helpful to veterans in a housing context. Next slide, please. So the first program that we're going to uh, discuss today is the Chapter 115 program. And this is a public assistance benefit available to low income veterans in Massachusetts. And it helps to provide assistance with daily living expenses for those veterans and their dependents. Uh, some examples of the types of things that it can help with are reimbursement for medical costs, rental arrears, other assistance to prevent veterans' homelessness, and um, financial assistance in other emergency situations. So generally to be eligible for this program, the veteran or their dependent must be low income, meaning less than 200% of the federal poverty level and have uh, assets of less than $5,000. The program is administered by local veteran service officers and in conjunction with the State Department of Veteran Services. Each city or town has a VSO, which usually can be located uh, in their city or town hall. I would encourage you to use the calculator that's linked here on the screen, the Mass Vets Benefits Calculator, from our friends over at the Legal Services Center at Harvard Law School to determine whether or not a veteran that you're working with is eligible. They can also apply through their city or town VSO or the State Department of Veterans Services website. Um, and a list of VSOs and their contact information is also available on the Mass Veterans Benefits Calculator as well, I believe. The program is governed by Massachusetts General Law, Chapter 115 and Section 108 of the Code of Mass Regulations. VSOs can also help their dependents apply for other benefits, including service-connected disability or direct be- uh, veterans to community uh, resources um, for other benefits, including food or social security, unemployment benefits, child care assistance, things of that nature. Um, There is, as with most public assistance programs, some strings attached to the Chapter 115 program, including a requirement that veterans on the program apply for other benefits that they may be eligible for, as well as a requirement that they perform a work search if they are physically capable. Examples of assistance that the 115 program has provided in some of our housing cases include help with uh, hiring cleaning crews if there's a sanitation or a a hoarding issue, um, as well as help securing uh, furniture and um, moving expenses for elderly or disabled veterans. We believe that this program is very underutilized, so we would encourage, excuse me, we would encourage any potentially eligible veterans to apply. Next slide, please. Hi, so uh, it's,
2: am I now, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna talk about um, SSVF, which stands for Supportive Services for Veterans Families. This is a federal program. It has two purposes. The first is to provide supportive services to very low income veteran families that are currently in or transitioning to permanent housing. It also has a rapid rehousing component to it. And the idea here is to rapidly rehouse homeless veteran families and prevent homelessness for those who are at imminent risk due to a housing crisis. This is all done through funds that are granted to private nonprofit organizations and consumer cooperatives that then provide supportive services to the veterans' families. And we've given you the authority for the SSVF program at the bottom of the slide. Next slide, please. This is a busy slide, but it's an important one. It gives an overview of the three requirements for SSVF eligibility. Because it's a veterans program, not surprisingly, you have to have a veteran involved. The veteran family for SSVF can be a veteran who is a single person or a family in which the head of household or the spouse of the head of household is a veteran. Please take note of the definition of veteran. For SSVF, veteran means a person in active service and who was discharged or released under conditions other than dishonorable. So if you have a veteran with a dishonorable discharge, they are not gonna be eligible for SSVF There are other programs they'll be eligible for. And we will talk about those in just a few minutes. The second requirement is that you have a very low income family. This requires an annual income of less than 50% of the area median income. You can calculate uh, the area median income by going to huduser.org. And I believe what you would be looking for is slash datasets. The third requirement for SSVF eligibility is occupying permanent housing. Now that is not as restrictive as it sounds. There are three different categories into which a veteran family may fall in which it can satisfy this requirement. Category one, families are those who are currently residing in permanent housing, but there is an imminent risk of them losing their housing. So that's a housing, a homelessness prevention category. Category two are people who are currently homeless, but are scheduled to become resident of permanent housing within 50, I mean, sorry, within 90 days, pending the location or development of suitable permanent housing. Category three, families are also homeless families. They have exited permanent housing within the previous 90 days. And they've done so in order to seek housing that's more responsive to their needs and preferences. Next slide, please. SSVF has required supportive services and optional supportive services. In the required services, one that's not directly relevant to us, but it's outreach. This requires the grantee to ensure that hard to reach eligible veterans are found, engaged and provided supportive services. The grantees under this program also liaison with the local VA facilities, private agencies and organizations that are providing services. A little bit more relevant to us are the case management services. And here, uh, the ones that I look to most are developing and monitoring case plans And providing referrals and performing related activities as necessary. The case plan can be very important because oftentimes uh, I find with our veterans that they have issues that are not just related to housing. There may be some medical issues, mental health issues. Uh, Right now I'm seeing a lot of consumer debt issues from veterans who've lost their employment and have had to live on credit cards So now they not only have a housing issue, they've got a credit issue. Well, SSVF case managers can help develop plans for dealing with those issues. And so it provides some structure and stabilization in the veterans' lives. Similarly with providing referrals as a lawyer, oftentimes I'm just not suitably placed to be able to provide a referral SSVF case managers um, have a a better basis of knowledge for making referrals. uh, And that's why I looked at them to do that. Next slide, please. This is an incredibly important required service, assist participants to obtain VA benefits. A surprising number of veterans come to us being eligible for VA benefits, but not receiving them. Um, This requires, some education to educate them about uh, what their eligibility rights are. Uh, It also requires them some assistance. SSVF can come in with vocational and rehab counseling. They'll perform educational assessments. They'll do employment and training services. And most importantly, they will um, help veterans obtain VA healthcare services which is a very valuable benefit that veterans often do not receive. Next slide, please. Uh, Another category of required services is assisting in obtaining and coordinating other benefits other than VA benefits. This can include healthcare services, including referrals for health insurance or medical or mental health care. Uh, includes providing daily living services, personal financial planning services. I'm anticipating those are going to be more actively used as veterans are living on credit cards and things like that. And so they're going to need some financial planning assistance. Transportation services, income support services, SSVF can provide payee services, legal services. They will match up um, participants with um, outside legal providers, they provide childcare assistance and housing counseling services. Next slide, please. There are two optional supportive services provided under SSVF. The first is this really flexible catch-all. Basically, any service that anyone can think of and suggest That could be part of SSVF services so long as it's consistent with the SSVF program and it's approved by the VA. The second type of optional service is temporary financial assistance payments. These payments must help participants remain in or obtain permanent housing. And these payments are subject to restrictions. There are time and amount limitations Uh, There must be a development of a housing stability plan. Payments may only be made to third parties, not directly to the um, participants. Next slide, please. This chart shows you a little bit more detail about the type of financial, temporary financial assistance that's available as well as the time and the amount limitations. For example, you can get rental assistance for up to five months in any 12 month period Uh, with no more than a maximum of eight months in a three-year period. There's utility fee payment assistance. There's a one-time security or utility deposit assistance. Moving costs can be covered. Emergency supplies, four months of childcare in any 12-year period, and transportation costs also can be covered by SSVF. Next slide. Now it's back over to Eve.
1: Thank you, Julie. So the next program that we're gonna talk about is the HUD-VASH program. And VASH stands for VA Supportive Housing. And this is a subsidized housing voucher through the Department of Housing and uh, Urban Development um, or through HUD's uh, Housing Choice Voucher Program. And it is for chronically homeless veterans. So it's administered through the local public housing authorities in cooperation with the local VAs. And it is very similar to the Section 8 rental assistance vouchers. Um, so in order to be eligible, a veteran, which is the same definition as Julie discussed in her, um, in her SSVF presentation earlier, um, if someone is not a VA eligible veteran, they could consider upgrading their discharge or applying for a character of service determination, but that's a, a, a whole nother training and a much longer process. So they must be a veteran, they must meet the HUD homeless definition and demonstrate a need for case management services from the VA. And ideally the voucher is for chronically homeless veterans but uh, the program will also consider those who have capacity limitations such as traumatic brain injuries, post-traumatic stress disorder or other service connected conditions. So the VA determines their clinical eligibility for the program based on their need for case management services and the uh, local public housing authority determines their HUD eligibility. And that can vary somewhat somewhat by the housing authority depending on their admissions and continuing occupancy policy, as well as the area and median income and their income cutoffs. So as I said, the voucher comes with a VA case manager who provides support to the veteran while they're housed in an effort to uh, keep them living in the community. And these case management services oftentimes help a veteran who is formerly uh, chronically homeless and perhaps living on the streets or in some other type of shelter to transition to living in the community again. So they can really be um, very valuable. Uh, generally, the HUD-VASH program is administered in accordance with the HUD uh, with the housing choice voucher program. Uh, and those regulations can be found at 24 CFR section 982. And to apply for uh, the VASH program, you would contact a VA homeless program or get a referral from a VA case worker or another community program. So I frequently have seen veterans who um, are facing 4 because evictions due to conduct, which may um, uh, have been influenced by their disability and uh, they're in need of additional supportive services to live on their own. And HUD-VASH is a great program for them in those situations. Um, I've also used this in uh, for clients who are, are holdover or residual tenants living in subsidized housing and maybe the voucher holder passes away and they can't take over the voucher so I will have them apply for bash and that's a viable option because it's a much shorter waitlist than the traditional section eight vouchers. Next slide please. So next we're going to talk about the CARES Act and the HUD moratorium as well as the CDC moratorium. Um, I think that these are important to touch upon because uh, I think they will impact our veterans, Um, but I know that there's still a lot to be seen on how these will play out practically since our state eviction moratorium only expired very recently. So the CARES Act or the HUD moratorium Uh, restricts lessors of covered properties from filing new eviction actions for non-payment of rent, and also prohibits charging fees, penalties, or other charges uh, to the tenant related to non-payment of rent. So what are covered properties? Covered properties include um, those that are participating in a covered housing program as defined by the Violence Against Women Act of 2013, otherwise known as VAWA, those who participate in the Rural Housing Voucher Program, those who have a federally backed mortgage loan, or those who have a federally backed multifamily mortgage loan. So note that VASH would be included under this uh, definition of a covered housing program because it is covered by VAWA. So what does the federal eviction moratorium not do? It does not prohibit the filing of cases um, that were Uh, filed before this moratorium took effect or that are filed after it sunsets that involved non-covered tenancies or where the eviction is based on another reason besides non-payment of rent or non-payment of other fees and charges. Um, The CARES Act was originally passed in March. However, this uh, moratorium for um, uh, federally covered programs uh, has been extended an additional 120 days or until December 31st, 2020. So what does this mean for our VASH clients that they need to recertify, recertify, recertify. So for um, those participants in VASH, their rent is going to be a percentage of their income. So if their income does decrease, um, it's very important that they recertify that and let the public housing authority or their VASH caseworker know immediately. This program will also protect mortgagees with VA or other federally backed loans. Um, and it offers multiple protections on VA guaranteed loans if you experience a financial hardship uh, directly or indirectly caused by COVID-19. And those, uh, those benefits include a forbearance period of 180 days with a possible extension of another 180 days, um, a foreclosure moratorium through December 31st, 2020, and very specific instructions on how mortgage servicers should report uh, any delinquencies to the credit reporting agencies. So the bottom line is if you have somebody who has a um, a, a VA loan uh, who is looking at foreclosure or unable to pay their mortgage, they should certainly contact their mortgage servicer to see what options are available. Of note also is that this does not just cover VASH, VASH, excuse me, VA loans, as I mentioned, but also covers um, other federally backed or funded loans, including FHA, USDA, Fannie Mae, or Freddie Mac loans. Next slide, please. So next we'll talk about the CDC moratorium. And this applies to a much broader spectrum of renters, including those that may not qualify for uh, for subsidized housing. And it requires the renter to certify a declaration stating that they've used their best efforts to obtain all available government assistance for renter housing, that they expect to earn no more than 99,000 in annual income for 2020, or no more than 198,000 if filing a joint tax return, or that they were not required to report any income in 2019 to the IRS, or that they received a federal stimulus check pursuant to the CARES Act. And that's important for our veteran clients because a lot of them are receiving um, veterans benefits which are non-taxable. So they may not have had to report any income in 2019 to the IRS. They also must certify that they're unable to pay the full rent or make a full housing payment due to a substantial loss of household income um, or of work hours, a wait, um, or of wages, or a layoff, or due to extraordinarily, extraordinary out-of-pocket medical expenses. So of note also is that this financial hardship does not have to be specifically COVID related. They must certify that they are using their best efforts to make timely partial payments that are as close to the full payment as the, their individual circumstances may permit, and that that eviction would likely render them homeless or force them to move into uh, close quarters or another congregate or shared living setting because they don't have any other available housing options. So this does cover all evictions except those that are due to criminal activity, um, those that are a result of behavior threatening the health and safety of other residents, damage to property, those that violate other local or state regulations, or that those where uh, the, the tenant is allegedly violating other contract obligations not related to payment. My understanding is that courts um, will still accept filings and process these cases, and they may go so far as entering judgments, but that they will not be able to enter an order of execution or the court order that allows a landlord to evict a tenant until after the expiration of the CDC order. Um, If you do have a client who you believe may be eligible for relief under the CDC moratorium, you also want to take a look at the District Court and Housing Court most recent standing orders, which include the recommended CDC declaration form to use, although I believe that you can use um, any other declaration form so long as it's certified under Pains and Penalties of Perjury. I also believe that under the new Housing Court Summary uh, Process Case Management Procedures, that. Eligibility for coverage under the CDC moratorium should be addressed at the first appearance or the case management conference in these cases, um, but it can also be raised at any other time in the process. Next slide, please.
2: All right, that's back to me. So I'm going to talk about two programs that are not specific to veterans but I've used them for veterans who uh, have dishonorable discharges uh, and don't qualify for some of the veteran VA programs. Homebase is a rapid rehousing program and it's within the Department of Housing and Community Development. It just got $48.7 million in new funds and this was part of Governor Baker's post moratorium rental assistance program uh, the goal of home base is basically twofold to keep people out of shelters and once they've gone into shelters to get them out as quickly as possible. And this is done by providing financial assistance resources and services to quickly rehouse families 11 statewide agencies uh, administer the home base program next slide please. So for eligibility, uh, the applicant must be determined eligible for emergency assistance by a DHCD homeless coordinator. This requires meeting income and asset limits. The household, the annual household income must be at or below 115% of federal poverty guidelines. That's very low income. Assets must be no greater than $2,500. There must also be a child under the age of 21 in the family. And lastly, the family must be homeless or at imminent risk of homelessness. Next slide, please. Home-based benefits and services. They include an assessment of the client. Uh, one of the most important services that I find in home Homebase is a housing search uh, service. I've got one veteran in particular. He's an older veteran. He still has a flip phone. He's uh, never had a smartphone. He doesn't have a computer. He's never done an internet search. I asked him if he knew what Google was and he didn't know what Google was. Uh, So his ability to do online searches for housing was next to nothing. Uh, but I hooked him up with Home Base, and they are now doing a search for him in conjunction with him, of course, working with him. And the idea will be to then have uh, Home Base place him in the new housing and provide case management and stabilization services. Eligible families are eligible for a rehousing benefit of up to ten thousand dollars. This is uh, newly increased from four thousand dollars. And again, this was part of Governor Baker's rental assistance plan. Um, That up to $10,000 benefit may be used in any combination at the um, tenant's discretion to address um, any of the following. First and last month's rent and security deposit on a new apartment, Uh, rent or utility arrearages on the existing apartment, short-term monthly rental payments on the new apartment, moving expenses, and basic furniture costs. Next slide, please. The next program I'm gonna talk about is the RAFT program. This is the Residential Assistance for Families in Transition program. Again, it's not uh, veteran specific, but I've used it with veterans who have dishonorable discharges. Uh, RAFT is funded by the Department of Housing and Community Development. It provides short-term financial assistance to low-income families who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless. Just like Homebase just got some money through the Governor Baker program, Raft just got $100 million in new funding. The maximum Raft benefit was also increased from $4,000 to $10,000 per household. But Raft has a condition on that benefit. And that condition is that the landlord must agree to preserve the tenancy for six months or until June 21st for households with school-aged children, whichever is longer. Next slide, please. Okay, everyone, here is your free bad pun of the day. There have been a raft of raft COVID-19 changes. In response to uh, COVID-19, RAFT has been greatly streamlined. Before COVID, uh, RAFT was a program I did not like and thought was pretty much a nightmare. It had um, all kinds of documentation requirements, verification requirements. It was an onerous application process, but now it's been streamlined. An applicant only needs to file a short statement, which could actually be verbal connecting their housing emergency with the COVID-19 crisis. You no longer need third-party verification or documentation verifying the loss of income. Applications will now be processed without documentation that is normally required. Applicants may qualify for utility assistance with a notice of arrears. You no longer need a shutoff notice. Subsidized applicants may receive RAFT a second time within 24 months, but first a rent adjustment should be looked at if there's been a loss of income. Um, this is an important one. Applicants no longer need to be behind on payments to apply for RAFT. You can, only be, you can be at risk of falling behind, but you no longer have to actually be behind on payments to be eligible for RAFT. Income eligibility is based on current income. CARES Act payments are not included in the eligible income calculations. And last but not least, and perhaps one of the most important points, and I put it last, applicants do not need a notice to quit, court summons or utility shutoff notice to apply to RAFT. Next slide, please. Eligible uses for RAFT funds include rent, mortgage and utility arrearages, first last month's rent, security deposit and utility startup costs, rent payments uh, for the rent going forward, moving costs and furniture. Next slide, please. Um, we also just wanted to bring to your attention other private nonprofits that may be able to assist you. They're not necessarily programs providing direct financial assistance, but we have found them to be very helpful. They include Father Bills and Mains Mainspring, Hadrea for Heroes, Home Corps in the Office of the Attorney General, Homes for Our Troops, Vets Inc., and Volunteers of America. Next slide, please. Is this the last slide, Julie? No, there should be another slide.
1: Give me one moment. Well, while we're having some technical difficulties, we can also sort of uh, encourage folks to consider local non-Veteran-specific nonprofits. They may have funding available for veterans as well. Um, You also may want to check into the uh, Veterans of of Foreign Wars or VFWs, local VFWs. They may have um, funds available as well. And I do know that there are some VA facilities and the Chelsea Soldiers Home in this area that do have transitional housing programs for folks that can serve as a uh, a house a uh, a placeholder if folks while folks are looking for housing. Um, so tying this all together, these are sort of the three major. Um, types of eviction cases, non-payment for cause or conduct-based evictions, and no-cause evictions. And these are sort of the resources that immediately come to mind or that I would look to in these different types of situations. Um, there is also a site on this page to an op-ed piece that was recently written by Anna Richardson and Sarah Roxburgh, which are the co-executive directors of Veterans Legal Services, that reviews a lot of the programs that we talked about um, here today. Next slide, please. And lastly, this is contact information for both myself and for Julie as well as for Angie. Um, please feel reach out. Feel free to reach out to us uh, if you have any substantive questions to myself or to Julie. And if you have, uh, if you're interested in volunteering as a pro bono attorney, we would encourage you to reach out to Angie. And back over to Angie, I believe, or to you, Nick.
3: Yeah, it looks like we we got a question um, from someone in, in the Q and A. Um, how is quote imminent homelessness end quote defined by these programs?
1: Eve, I believe that goes to either the SSVF or I would say Raptor Home Base, and I okay. think it's a question of um, sort of. Uh, where they are in in the process and how quickly or likely they are to be facing an an eviction. I know that some of the programs, for instance, do require a notice to quit in order for them to be considered imminently homeless. Um, I'm not sure whether or not that's changed now during sort of COVID times or how that will be be impacted by sort of the, the likely increase in eviction cases that we will be seeing.
3: Perfect. Thanks. Um, So I I think it's, is it me now? Is that correct? Yes.
0: Yes, Yes, Nick. Go ahead.
3: Okay. And can everyone see my screen that I'm sharing? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's tough because not all of us can talk. Um, So, uh, hi guys. I'm Nick Kastenfuss. I realized that in my introduction, I forgot to say that I was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. Uh, I went to Iraq from 08 to 09 in Afghanistan in 2010. Um, One of the other things I wanted to say is I have looked at the attendee list and I I see a lot of familiar names. Uh, I hope one day to say that I see a lot of familiar faces, but uh, we definitely appreciate the support Um, and and thanks for coming to our program. And third and most importantly, uh, I'm drinking a Wendy's Frosty Chino. It's a frosty plus ice cream. I think it's probably the best thing that's come out of 2020 so far. So I recommend that you give it a whirl if you haven't. So I'm going to go through some cultural, uh, some veteran cultural competency. I don't want to call them issues, but things to highlight. And then just some some brief practice points. Uh, I know we have you till one, and we want to make sure it's time for questions. That being said, uh, please feel free to use the Q&A function to ask questions as uh, I'm going along here. I know that sometimes waiting to the end, you can kind of forget exactly what um, you wanted to ask, and uh, we'll try to either answer them as they come up, if it makes sense, or wait till the end, but please feel free to ask them whenever. So first things first, who is your client? If it's a veteran, This is a big, uh, a big point that I think some veterans, particularly if you're not in the, we're not in the Army, um, understand what you're going to call them. Uh, Not every veteran is a soldier, right? So only folks that were in the Army are soldiers, so it can sometimes be seen as disrespectful if you were to call someone in the Marine Corps a soldier. Um, uh, I realize that I don't have the Navy up here, but they would be sailors. Um, so I apologize for that. If anyone here is from the Navy, that was not intentional. Uh, but just kind of understand your client and understand what you want to call them. Uh, it's always okay to call everyone a service member or a veteran. Of um, course. Um, so next, what are you know? I I I I put this chart up here to help you kind of understand. Um, If you're not a veteran, veteran uh, veterans have their own uh, culture. Um, Sometimes it's a little different than uh, what you might be used to in civilian life. That being said, if you happen to be listening to this program and you're not a veteran, I don't think that or I know that that shouldn't stop you from assisting veterans. Um, It's not a type of group where you have to be a veteran to help other veterans uh, some of the biggest veteran supporters in providing the most assistance are champions to veterans, and veterans will be very um, respectful to that. But you might uh, be going into, you know, you might be um, seeing some things you're not used to. So one of the, the, the biggest two here, I think, are the first two, direct com- communication and conflicts addressed. Um, whereas in the civilian world, sometimes we kind of, quote unquote, beat around the bush. Uh, it might be pretty likely that if, uh, you know, you're late on something or the veteran is confused, they're going to be very blunt about it and they might seem to be very short, particularly on emails. Don't think that they're mad at you or that's kind of like a, a, a an assessment of what you're providing. Uh, the services you're providing is just kind of what uh, the culture is like. There's some other things in here um, that you can review. I think they're kind of uh, self-explanatory, I think the big one is is kind of the direct communication and directly uh, addressing conflicts because it might um, just be something aware of if if you're getting an email at six in the morning with with questions that seem very blunt uh, and annoyed. Uh, So moving along here, um, these are what the VA has reported as the most common veteran disabilities. Um, Understand the disabilities your veteran uh, tenant might be having, um, because they might be able to, uh, you know, help you develop a narrative and understand what kind of defenses um, are available uh, if there's an eviction. So some of, some of the big ones that, that you're probably aware of here are PTSD, um, traumatic brain injury, also called TBI, uh, anxiety, and then you know you'll see a lot of things arthritis, uh, knee problems, just, just understand the disability that they have, understand if they're receiving VA benefits for those disabilities, and, and see how it can kind of impact the services you're gonna provide and what you recommend. So we wanted to talk uh, about some of the recent veteran clients I've had in landlord-tenant matters. Um, And then you'll see that I'm gonna kind of reference back to these two clients um, when we move along in the slides here. So uh, first client was probably, um, you know, the easiest ever to build a story around. Uh, He was an older veteran, uh, a Vietnam POW. He lived with an elderly mother-in-law, his wife and a 13 year old child um, the landlord want him out immediately. You'll see that a lot of times the landlord will be represented first and the tenants will not. And there'll be a lot of bullying. And then when an attorney gets involved, pro bono or not, uh, like magic, they're um, civil again. So um, wanted $3,000 in damages. Our client first, first asked was, can we just have, this is before an attorney was involved. Can we have one month so my 13-year-old daughter can finish school? Landlord said, no way, baby, get out. Um, which is pretty crazy. Um, So at the end, we ended up getting an additional four months from the time they said get out uh, for the family to remain at the home. Um, That gave the veteran time to purchase his first home in New Hampshire. Um, We assisted the veteran obtain payment of moving expenses. That can be a a big issue. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. and the veteran received $750 of his $1,000 security deposit back and paid uh, $0 in damages. Uh, another client here, the uh, veteran, his wife and an adult special needs daughter. Uh, this one was very contentious. The landlord claimed that there was thousands in damages. They had lived there for about 13 years, um, wanted the daughter out immediately and separated from the parents, which is kind of crazy. Um, she also claimed that uh, there was a criminal charge she was going to file against the daughter because the daughter had pushed her for being the landlord. Uh, end of the day, we ended up getting three additional months. We got time for the client to uh, find a new place, um, negotiate to have an independent contractor assess damages. I'll talk about that a little bit more moving on, um, uh, which if the damage is one of the $1,100 and the veteran would re- receive the entire security deposit back, less half the cost of the independent contractor. The key here when you're when you're representing veterans is to <clears throat> make sure that you understand all the claims. So client two had that unique complexity with a criminal claim mixed into a landlord-tenant matter. Make sure that there's a really, really broad waiver in any kind of settlement agreement that waives you know, at least all the landlord's claims against all the tenants, because that's going to be important. they obviously don't want a criminal claim hanging over their head because the landlord's upset about what happened. <laughs> so first steps when receiving a referral for a um, landlord tenant eviction matter, uh, understand what phase you're in. Generally, it seems that we're going to get them at the notice to quit phase. That's not always the case, but um, you know, uh, the te- the client has received a notice to quit. The first thing you should recommend the client does, and this is probably the most important thing to do, is, is look for suitable housing. We'll talk a little bit later about what the law kind of says is suitable housing, but immediately have that tenant start looking for housing. Even if they've contacted you before the notice to quit and the landlord just said, hey, I'm thinking about taking you out, that's when they should start looking for housing. We wanna start building a story that, hey, our clients are great, they want to leave too, there's just nowhere for them to go. So the earlier you start looking, if it's a day before the first court date, that's obviously much worse than before you even get the notice to quit. Um, uh, There could be difficulties with that. Of course, um, Julie mentioned before, her client just has a flip, one of her clients has a flip phone, hates Google, doesn't know what apartments.com is. So you, you know, there may be agencies that can help you search You might want to help them search, um, figure out what works best for the client. I I do feel that a lot of times representing uh, a tenant in a landlord tenant eviction matter, you sometimes are doing more things that maybe are not just attorney related. Uh, I think you need to make sure that, you know, you could get the best settlement agreement ever, but if they have nowhere to go, they're still gonna end up getting evicted and that, that agreement isn't gonna be effective. So make sure that you're helping them find where you know the services they need, or if they don't have a computer, you could maybe help them find some places and review them once a week and keep a log of all those things. So if you have to go to court and tell the judge, hey, we need more time. I brought a print out with 180 contacts one time to court and the judge said, hey, they're doing everything they could. It's been two and a half months. What else can they do? we literally could do nothing else. We were looking for so many places. So just understand that. Another key here is understand the client's wants and needs. The client might think they want to go to court, uh, have a trial, sit, you know, tell their story, say why the landlord was terrible. But really the only thing the landlord did was kind of never, you know, didn't timely fix their hot water. You might want to help them understand that uh, a lot of judges are going to be seeing slumlords in a lot worse conditions. It's not really as terrible as they think. Let's try to figure this out amicably. But I would say always let them tell you why they're mad and then try to calm them down. Um, so moving along, uh, I know we're, time's getting short, so I'm going to start going faster. Um, but please feel free to email me uh, any questions you have um, uh, I'm happy to help out. Um, the, the key for, for these landlord-tenant matters is we need to make sure that our clients find suitable housing. So, um, uh, you know, that, that's going to be number one, and there's a lot of things you can do to make sure you get more time, even if the landlord doesn't agree to it. So, you know, the first thing to do is to see if the notice to quit is effective. I'm not going to go into a ton of details about reviewing notices to quit, but there's a lot of specific things that need to be on there. They have to give you a specific amount of time. For example, if you wanted someone out on October 1st and it was a month-to-month, and you gave it to them on September 2nd, that's not effective, right? That would not be effective because it's not a full rental period if the, if the payment of rents due on the on the 1st of the month. So, that's important to understand the law and the complexities. Um, if you were effective with a motion to dismiss for a notice to quit, it would require the landlord to start the process over. So. Um, you know if you file a motion to dismiss at some point or you know or your answer um and the notice to quit is ineffective it might be a good bargaining chip in the future for a negotiation with the landlord right because they're probably not going to want to restart the whole process again and even if you don't think you would move forward with the notice to you know to quit deficiency it's good to have that in your back pocket so try to find a deficiency with it even if you don't think it's a, you know, the best argument, it's always something you can kind of negotiate out when you're looking for more time. Same with discovery requests. So if you, if you put in discovery requests, the trial date automatically gets postponed two weeks and it now is the rescheduled trial date. That's a tricky one to remember, but understand that you automatically get two weeks if you file discovery. Pretty easy to file discovery. Um, the other thing that we like to do is file a lot of discovery. So generally, landlord attorneys are not going to be pro bono. So um, once you file a ton of, uh, uh, you know, legal discovery requests, that's going to be a lot of time for someone to respond to. Do you need all that discovery? Maybe, maybe not, but you can always negotiate it out. Uh, Give them time to answer the discovery while you're looking for a new place. Just be creative in the ways, the reasons why you're filing things and what you're going to do with those later on. Understand that you can transfer the matter to the housing court, right? So um, uh, as long as it's no later than the day before the trial date or rescheduled trial date, you can transfer the action to housing court if it was filed in district court or superior court. Um, that's obviously gonna extend the time before the trial, even if you were to lose. So just understand that the transferring is like this really easy one sheet of paper that you don't need the consent of the landlord, super easy it's gonna get you more time. So there's just a lot of things here you can do. Of course, the last one is asking the landlord for more time. That's probably the first one you wanna do, but um, they'll probably gonna say no at first, at least until you see what you have um, So here's where we're talking about staying an eviction. If you were to lose and there's an eviction, um, the judge has the ability to grant a stay. So as long as this isn't a non-payment claim, and a lot of times, uh, you know, we're, veterans here are, are paying the rent, it's just a month to month, someone wants them out. A judge can always grant up to a six month stay. A judge can grant up to a 12 month stay if, if there's a handicapped person or an individual 60 years of older living at the apartment. So why is that important? Because 12 months is better than six, hopefully they, it wouldn't take them that long to find a place. But remember, we are talking about understanding your veteran's disabilities, Here's where you can really play that out. Hey, they have a mental impairment, which substantially limits their ability to care for themselves, or significantly the housing appropriate <clears throat> See how that could play in. Um, it, it's important to know. And here when we talked about what is suitable housing, so Massachusetts General Law, uh, chapter 239, section 10, says if it if, if this is about granting a stay, um, that the applicant cannot secure suitable premises for himself and his family elsewhere within the city or town in a neighborhood similar to that in which the premises occupied by him are situated, he has used due and reasonable efforts to secure such premises. That's when a judge can grant a stay. So the law says that suitable housing is a neighborhood similar to that in which the premises occupied by him are, are situated. So, you know, would I hang my hat on, hey, we, can't, we're not moving out because we haven't found it in the same neighborhood? No, probably not. But just understand that, you know, we're not saying you have to go from the, the best place in the world to the worst place in the world or the worst neighborhood. It has to be suitable for your family. Um, so just keep that in mind. You being the tenant, not the tenant. Um, so uh, a, a big thing that's gonna come up is what's wear and tear damages. Um We see this all the time that the, the landlord thinks there's thousands of dollars in damages, like I was talking before. There probably isn't, but understand what's going on. Um, it's harder to visit the apartment now. I would always, prior to COVID-19, recommend you visit the apartment and get an understanding of its conditions. I would now say make sure you're getting pictures. Um, uh, generally, um, a landlord has to return the security deposit but can withhold Money to repair damages that are not reasonable wear and tear. So you saw in one of my clients, we had an independent uh, about, uh, independent contractor come in, give an opinion about what was wear and tear, um, and we made a settlement agreement beforehand that if the damages were under $1,100, I have no idea why they agreed to that, we would pay nothing, and if it was over $1,100, we would pay whatever the um, contractor found. So I found a contractor is willing to do it for $50 an hour. I let him know that my client was there for 13 years, which obviously impacts what would be wear and tear. If you think about like tiling, painting, stuff like that. I also let him know the situation. We have a veteran who has a adult aged handicapped uh, daughter. We're really just trying to move out and try to, um, you know, I wouldn't say not make him independent, but help him understand the situation and what was going on here. And end of the day, it was about, like he found a thousand dollars of the 1100. So we got the entire security deposit back minus our half of the $200 fee for his time. Um, so I'm just gonna cruise through these. There's some other, other things that come up a lot here under other damages that you might be able to claim. Again, not all of these are winners all the time, but things like 93A may, um, might give your client the ability to collect attorney's fees. If you're at Holland at night and your billable hour is $785 an hour. That could be very scary for a uh, landlord to see as a potential um, for exposure. And it might be something you can negotiate out. So make sure you're you're really clear about the counterclaims you're going to bring. Make sure they make sense, but make sure that even if you don't think they're the best claim in the world, um, there's something that you can negotiate out to say, hey, we'll you know we'll, we're gonna settle these, but we want more time. We want our deposit back. Other assistance, uh, I think this is a big one. Just understand your client's needs, right? Reference letters, sometimes for whatever reason, landlords really don't wanna write these. Okay, well, my, my tenant lived at your place for 13 years. Obviously they need a reference letter. If you don't do it, they're not gonna move out. Help us help you get the client out. You might have to explain to a, an attorney why you need a reference letter. You might write it and just have them sign it. But it it could be the case, you need a reference letter and the the landlord doesn't wanna do it, explain why. Moving expenses can be difficult to get. Others have talked about agencies to go to. I would highlight that there are other veterans agencies like Massachusetts Fallen Heroes, Easter Seals. Easter Seals paid for my entire client's moving expenses from Massachusetts to New Hampshire. Um, Because he was a POW and a veteran, they have a program like they give one-time assistance to uh, um veterans in need so just understand that things like Easter Seals, um Matt Massachusetts Fallen Heroes, other veterans organizations like the BFW might have a lot less stringent guidelines to help. Um other things you know I talked talk about is uh there are sometimes things like holding money in escrow, finding people to help clean, pack, giving them some some bankers boxes from the office to help them pack. Think of ways you can help the client. So I know we're really close to the of time and that's my last slide.
0: Thank you so much, Nick. Um, did we have any other questions? Does anybody wanna put them in the Q&A or are we gonna be good to go? Give a second, people think about any questions they might have. We will be sharing um, the PowerPoint slides with you all when we send out the recording of the training. So no worries about that. I know there was a question about that in the chat already. Um, so seeing no questions and seeing that it is pretty much one o'clock. Did, did anybody wanna add anything, Eve and Julie, or are you guys fed? Oh, I'm all set. Okay. All right, so um, thank you very much uh, everybody for attending. Oh, hold on. I see a and A here. Oh, it's just it's just a thank you. <laughs> thank you, Alyssa. Um, uh, thank you, everybody, for attending. Thank you so much to Nick, Julie, and Eve for presenting and giving us so much information that I know is going to be useful uh, to everybody representing tenants, especially as these moratoria end and things might pick up in the housing court. Um, once again, if anybody would like, is not already a volunteer or a pro bono pro bono attorney with Veterans Legal Services and is interested in joining our panel, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Um, my information is going to be in the slides and also it's just Angie at veteranslegalservices.org. Uh, you can find our information on the website too at veteranslegalservices.org and um, yeah, volunteer, help us out. Our veterans um, really, really need it and deserve it. It's a really great way to give back to uh, those people who give, give of themselves freely to, to protect our country. So thank you very much again to the presenters and to the BBA and, uh, and to also the veterans and military service members law forum, which helped us sponsor this event. Bye-bye.